The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. If you're under the age of 18, don't listen! The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the employers of these two podcasters. Look! Up in the sky! Is it a bird? A plane? No! It's two dudes, one double feature! Welcome to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, our brand new podcast in which two dudes watch two movies. Pretty self-explanatory, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've done this three times so far now, so I, I figure at this point people gotta know what we're doing. In case, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, we're two dudes, and we talk about two movies every episode. I'm Dude One. My name's Richard. And I'm Dude Two. Joey or Joe, whatever you like, whatever you like to call him. You know, fun about that. <laughs> so I've I've just always known him as Joey. He's recently started adapting to Joe, so now I'm just like in a in like a what do I call him? But you know what? I'll just call him Joey out of habit. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, you're one of the people that that can definitely just call me Joey. Take that, world. I have. You can't do that. I can. I don't even know that's a privilege they really want to be proud of, but whatever. I'm going to, listen, if you can make a diploma, I'll hang it on my wall and frame it. It's like the only man that can call Joey, <laughs> Joey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, but how, how are you, though, by the way? How, how's, how's, uh, how's your times? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. You know, not much has changed over the last... Uh, we recorded last week, you know, and we're we're in we're in constant touch every yeah. day. I guess I like I pretty much feel like every single day we're just hanging out or talking or hanging out and talking virtually. It's the magic of the internet. Virtually, yes. Yeah, we're not actually in the same room. No, 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 no. Don't, don't. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been watching. Uh, I picked up a couple Criterion movies as I said last week and i have been able to watch all of them over the last couple of days you were, you were telling me that you you you're telling me that you just watched the great escape which isn't that like three hours long it's a three hour long movie it's just under three hours but you know at least it's three hours of steve mcqueen on a motorcycle i mean isn't that enough this might be it might be right up there with like magnificent seven as like the manliest movie ever made because you got steve mcqueen you have James Coburn. It just Coburn, makes me think of if, Charles if, they, Bronson, if they decided to do like Predator when those guys were still around, that they should have been the guys that got hunted down. Yeah, no. <laughs> just like it's like you got all these like beefy men in the, in Predator, and then in the early verse, it's just Steve McQueen and uh, you know, all these guys. I I don't know. I think that would be kind of funny. Yeah, that would that would have been someone superimposed that as a poster for me. <laughs> I mean, I've been watching a lot of movies that, I mean, I've seen before millions of times, but I'm trying to start watching stuff that I hadn't seen before. So, like, I recently started watching, speaking of manly movies, I guess you could say, uh, I finally started watching the Mission Impossible movies. One half is, is, is like, a mixture of just okay, then the second half's, like, all pretty amazing. Yeah. I gotta say something about Tom Cruise. Like, we make fun of him. He's weird. He's a Scientologist. You know, he does... But the endurance... 
on that guy. Yes, his his running is a meme, but yeah, gotta rest. I can't even run to just go to the bathroom. I walk slowly and complain about me having to pee. If I ran, it would probably take two seconds to get there. <laughs> but I don't know. Just like the more I watch those movies, the more I'm like, dang, Tom Cruise is like, he's just fit. He- <laughs> you know, he has a real commitment to making quality. And I know there are some movies he's made over the last couple of years, like The Mummy and probably a handful of others Ooh. that aren't great. But he, he's he got a halfway decent like track record in a lot of cases in comparison to other people his age, which is ridiculous. Like The Rock or Will Smith, he's kind of his own genre. It's like you kind of know what to expect, good or bad, when you watch a Tom Cruise movie. So I've 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 grown to to enjoy his movies even more and just kind of take away like his personal life even though in a weird way the Mission Impossible movies kind of reflect his personal life. I mean, you can't tell me that in Mission Impossible 3 when he's with Michelle Monaghan that when you look at her you don't see Katie Holmes. You can't say mm, that. Sure. <laughs> you cuz I, I can't help but look at that and be like <laughs> I feel like there's something going on here. <laughs> and speaking of new movies, I I, I just want to inject one more thing real quick i've watched probably the best movies that i've seen in a long time best movies i've seen in all of quarantine and i've been bugging joey fun fact to try and do a double feature episode on these paddington one and two the bear (laughs) there's oh my god these movies are so fantastic they're so much smarter than they need to be so much smarter than pretty much any movie for adults that i can think of in like the past few years Ben Winshaw, or Wishaw, I, Winsh, I can never pronounce his name, um, Q, from the recent James Bond movies, plays Paddington so wonderfully, and there's so many iconic British actors, Brendan Gleeson, Hugh Grant, Sally Hawkins, just watch them. They're so, especially now, they just fill your heart with joy. They're so needed right now. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I love these movies. So there you go. And I'm trying to get uh, Joe to watch them. What's our what is our first uh, movie on the docket today, Mister Mister Joe Dinny Dan? Our first movie, if you couldn't guess from the way our disclaimer played out or last week's hint, our first film is the 1978 classic Superman the movie. Mmm, Superman the movie, directed by Richard Donner, starring, of course, Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman. I gotta do the credit right, I'm sorry. I know the times have changed. I was I was wondering that. Right. I was at the edge of my seat thinking, <laughs> is he gonna say Christopher Reeve first? Is he gonna say Marlon Brando? <laughs> or is he gonna go like I mean, left, gotta, left got... field and just say Glenn Ford first? Because that's what I would have done. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I probably would have, but I didn't think of that. <laughs> but, but no, uh, yeah. <laughs> Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, and of course, uh, the late, great Christopher Reeve as... Superman. This movie, I feel like, defines Superman in a way that I don't think many other, like, quote-unquote, definitive movies have defined characters in a long time. Example, Batman. You can have different flavors of Batman. You can have your... Yeah, Bat. well, Batman's, Batman's more about, um... I've always argued that Batman's kind of a prime example of iconography, mm-hmm. in that... You just look at him visually, like he can. You can show almost nothing except for his silhouette, and you you just know it's right. him. And while obviously there is character, there is you know world building. There's all that stuff in Batman the movies and the comics, but 
for the most part, the character, as long as you get the essentials right, you can more or less do anything with him that you want, whereas Superman's a bit of a different drum to beat. Because let me just bring up different, like, Batman, Batman. You, of course, have the Adam West. Bat, Batman. The Batman. Adam West, of course, Michael Keaton. Right there, mm-hmm. just two very different things. Totally And then different. you, of course, have the Christopher yeah. Nolan uh, Batman, which is another thing. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's still a rich guy dressing up as a flying rodent. This is just a little bit more to that. I mean, hold on. It's <laughs> a little bit more to that, but essentially, yeah. Look, it's like the Invisible Man <laughs> episode last week. You know, there's two different things that, that take the same basic concept and they do great <laughs> things with them. Are you happy now? They do. They yes, all do yes. great things differently. Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Oh my goodness. I thought, you, I, I thought that was implied, but you just took it. Oh, we just named a bunch of Batman, right? Superman. Now, I'm sure there are some that will identify with certain Superman over other Superman or whatever. But more or less, when you ask a lot of Very people, true. it's Christopher Reeve. It's the Superman 78 right. with the John Williams music flying around, r- around the world, you know. That music is still iconic, and that's a testament to John Williams in general. Just for all the different iconic scores that he's done, he's pretty much everything that Steven Spielberg's done. He's done... Harry Potter, which became iconic, and then, of course, uh, Star Wars. Cannot mention Star Wars. Superman's definitely up there as far as one of his most iconic scores, and so when you hear that music, you know you're getting into Superman. No question. Don't get me wrong. There's been other great pieces of Superman music, too. Like, I think about the Flesher music from the 40s. I really love listening to that. The Hans Zimmer music was really good, but this one, there's just something about it. It just screams... Superman. I think you're about to say something. Did you say something earlier too where it's just like it's like you say Superman as you hum it along or whatever? When you hear that music, it's Superman. That's the first thing that pops in your head. It's like, oh, this is... And it makes you want to fly. Next time I'm on a plane, which won't be anytime soon, but next time I'm on a plane, listen to that, look out, look out the window, and I don't know, it would be pretty magical. Superman is, in a lot of ways, the granddaddy of, is the granddaddy of superheroes in more ways than one. I think it's often been said that the second most recognizable symbol on planet Earth is the Superman shield, second only to the Christian cross, which is a pretty astonishing like universality for a symbol that's hasn't been around for 90 years. It's only been around for 80 years. Right. You even look at just like modern superheroes, like some of the like more famous superheroes and you can easily see the influence there, like Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man, like, just on the surface, you know, they 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 both work at Daily Something. They're both saving the biggest cities in their world. They both uh, have red and blue color scheme. They're both regular chaps that wear glasses. It's pretty crazy, you know, just to think that this character's endured for as long as he has and has influenced all these characters, and to this day is still around and we're still talking about them and we're still, you know, watching movies and it's, it is incredible, honestly. And fun fact, not that I'm ever going to tell you guys exactly where I live, but I live fairly close to Cleveland, which is the birthplace of the creators of Superman, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. I hope I said that right. (laughs) I'm going to look that up real quick just so I know I got it right. 
I, I, I put all that I put all that effort into it to be like I live by these guys, and then I'm like, shoot, what are their names, dude? I put in all this effort for the for the uh, the notes, and we couldn't figure out the pronunciation of the creators of this character. Okay, Joe Schuster, Jerry Siegel. I think I said Joel. My bad. It is. Don't edit this out. It's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman. Okay, so at, by this point. 1978 okay obviously they, they made the movie before 1978 and came out in 1978 so 40 years after their initial inception of the initial creation of the character the initial appearance and you know already it's, it's just as american as apple pie just as american as the american flag or the american eagle and you know they have they have a big challenge ahead of them because this is a, a strange period in Hollywood because we're kind of towards the end of the new Hollywood period that okay. is kind of closed off with, like, Jaws and Star Wars because those were, you know, they took essentially the B-movie concept and sort of elevated them. And now with, with Superman, they did a big... This is a big-budget version of Superman. I'm, I, I don't have the exact budgetary figure on me, but I believe it was one of the most expensive productions ever made up to that point. It was a huge risk. I'm looking that up, actually. Sorry, <laughs> you're you're looking up the bu- the budget. It yeah, was a, well, it's a big budget. You know, it was a big deal production. Producers on this were the the Salkines, who were infamous producers to say the least. Um, right. Also yeah. famous for the Three Musketeers movies, and there's actually a rule, if I'm not mistaken, that's named after the after them because of the Three Musketeers movies. Are you familiar with this? I am not, but I'll let you know real quick. The budget for Superman the movie is 50 what was pardon me 55 million dollars and that was back in the 70s and star wars did star wars budget didn't even come close to that um the salt kinds they were famous infamous i should say because they did the three musketeers movies and they signed up all these actors and as it turned out the three musketeers was to be a two-parter oh oh so okay so i see where this is going now keep going now the law said, like the I think the law or like pre- legal precedent or whatever says you have to inform no, let no tell the actors if they're going to be involved in the back to back production they're signed on for a back to back production that they're not you know having not having the rug pulled underneath them or something like that. Here's okay. Here's my question to you because you'll probably since you know obviously more about this. So in later years when this whole idea of like trilogies became kind of a thing, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these movies that would just kind of afterthought become trilogies like Pirates of the Caribbean or the Matrix. Not that I'm saying they're afterthoughts, but you know, for the second and third movie, they would be shot consecutively. Yeah. So how often was it that movies would shoot back to back with the very first movie to the very second movie? Cause I don't, I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, as far as like other examples, like three musketeers and, um, and like similar to, oh, well there's back to the future, but that that's after Superman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The back to the future two and three, but again, sequels, sequels. I mean, there were sequels. I mean, cause the planet of the apes movies had a ton of sequels. Right. But, but were, but was there like a first movie and then immediately they were already doing the second one? How often does that happen? Cause that seems kind of rare. As far as back then, I can't I can't really think of anything. The closest thing, as far as today, I think of the Marvel movies with all that in the cinematic universes because it it's just assumed you got to do a bunch of these movies, even if it's even if it's not your franchise. Like like Chris Evans, you got to show up in Thor two. 
So here you go. Think about it like this. Chris Evans has appeared in as in at least one Marvel movie every year from 2011 through 2019. That man worked. So you got to you got to you got to he got to admire that as well. But again, th- those are all contracts and and mm-hmm. things things like that. But we're we're not here to talk about the legality of things. We're here to talk about Superman. And <laughs> they wanted to do like a like they were going to do two super I think at one point they had a huge script that they had to split up into two yeah. parts because it was like a 500 page script. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I remember reading or hearing somewhere just that the first two Superman movies were initially one whole script that was literally going to tell which is why Terrence Stamp as General Zod shows up at the beginning but never shows up ever again in the first movie but then it's the major villain in the second movie that was that was initially the plan if I remember correctly that they were going to do like it was going to be one whole thing but then obviously it was they had to cut it down and split it up that that and it's actually interesting you mentioned Terrence Stamp too because the the climax of this movie is interesting and is one of the things uh people criticize the most about Superman 7. Are you talking about the time travel thing? The 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 globe yes, spinning the time travel thing which I think narratively fits in with the story because it, you you hear the voiceovers of Pa Kent and um and Jor-El just to give backstory he has to save Lois because Lois is, you know, dead, yeah. effectively. Yeah, she's dead. But his, his Kryptonian dad saying, you shouldn't interfere with human affairs, and then Pa Kent's like, you know, you, you're put on this place for a reason, you know, you have all these amazing powers, and it was crazy, too, because earlier in the movie, and it's one of the most effective scenes in the movie, is when Pa Kent dies. Oh, my and gosh. It's so it's so effective, because you have... Imagine, you are Superman. You can do just about anything, you know, and you can't save, you can't, you couldn't save your dad. It, it's no. such a it, when crazy we were, thing. Um, when we were watching it, like it's still like, cause I, maybe cause I hadn't seen it in a while, but just watching that scene, it still affects you. You know, he's not in the movie very long, but he gives a great performance as Pop he makes Kent, it and, work for what he's, and he makes yeah, it work for the, the, time the speech is great. But to set anyway, so Superman has to time travel basically to save Lois, and he spins around the world, or you know whatever you want to call it. Loop-de-loop. That was supposed to be at the end of Superman Two, but mm-hmm. that didn't happen. I think part of that was because this the movie went way. I, I think at one point way over budget, so they had to stick. They they already shot. I guess the effects photographers already shot the ending of the other movie, so they had to stick that ending into the ending of the first Superman movie. Whereas originally it was going to tie more into the Kryptonian prisoners where like, I guess like a miss, I think if I'm not mistaken, like a missile was going to hit the, the phantom zone, you know, glass, uh, prison thingamajigger and then break out Zod, Nan and, uh, and Ursa, the Kryptonians that we see at the beginning of, um, the movie that, you know, are bad. (laughs) The, as, as well, I think they're called villains. Is that the right word? The villains. Well, of the they're, movie? they're 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 the villains of the next movie. Spoiler alert! Um, a lot of but, spoilers. But with Superman, it's crazy because you look at the way the movie is structured. the The first part, you have the the epilogue. The, I mean, the prologue essentially on Krypton. Or wait, hold on, Joey, Joey, hold on. Krypton, Krypton, Krypton. Let's get this right, as Marlon Brando as, said. Uh, the, the great actor Marlon Brando, Krypton. Crypt, so the planet Krypton, and 
Mr. I got paid three million dollars, Marlon Brando talks about Krypton and you know talks about how the planet is gonna explode and everyone's all <laughs> like, like nah, nah. B. <laughs> and this planet it's... ain't gonna blow up. What are you talking about? The style on that, the style on that's very much like a like sort of like a mixture of like seventies sci-fi mm. with some Flash Gordon uh, inspired elements with all the crystals. The reflective outfits are like really they're, striking too because you don't always they're see like so like costuming like that in movies. They're like literally wearing light almost, and I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It's it's crazy too because the costume designers talked about how they had to wear gloves to. You know, to make the costumes because otherwise it would have destroyed the reflective right. material that was on them. So they had to be very careful. That part is very different from when Superman lands in Smallville, and it feels like like a John Wayne, like a John Ford or Norman Ro- a John Ford movie or Norman right. Rockwell yeah. painting shots of the farm. Yeah, I love that one shot. Speaking of that, I know we were talking about this of Clark just kind of out in the field. I think it might have been after Pa Kent died, and Ma Kent comes out and like kind of like is with him and like embraces him yeah that's a great shot oh that's a beautiful beautiful shot with that scene we go to obviously he goes to fortress of solitude which is his lair and then you go to metropolis which is essentially new york but you also it's, it's, you have a mixture it's 100 percent new york city but it's called metropolis but it's but you also have like as far as like the style of filmmaking it feels there's some parts that feel like a screwball comedy from like the 40s with Cary grant oh yeah Especially, like, with Ned Beatty and everything with him and Lex Luthor, yeah. Oh, and then in some parts, too, towards the end where we have, like, the re- like the, the the missiles shooting out, it feels like a, like a 70s disaster movie of parts, too. So it takes all of these genres, okay, like, you got the John Ford movie mixed in with the weird Flash Gordon stuff, and then the New York and screwball comedy and the disaster thing, and it just puts it in there. It doesn't try to make it... It just makes it so that way each piece feels perfect to what it is representing in the Superman mythos. And obviously, I feel like a big a big reason for that is because unlike most everybody else these days that make these kinds of movies, Richard Donner had no guideline. He had no thing to look at like, oh, let's let's try it like these guys did it because he did the first one. This this is the for all intents and purposes the very first real superhero movie and based on like a actual superhero character and so he he had the i guess the freedom almost to do all these different things and try all these different methods that now seem standard for so many people going into later movies and i guess that's another thing too we got to talk about is the casting helps set a precedent for this because you have Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman you have two highly prestigious academy award winning some of the most respected actors of the profession as the, as your two big stars top billing the movie and then superman they went top billing top billing of the movie that's why we, we said marlon brando right. yeah. and gene hackman first with with superman superman is more famous than any single person so it wouldn't make sense to get a movie star to play no. superman and that's that's been the constant thing that most everybody does is let's find a guy that isn't as well known but will make people believe these characters more so like granted they have changed that a little bit so like ben affleck playing batman you know is is kind of a departure from that because we all know who ben affleck is christian bale wasn't that like he, he had done a few things but he wasn't like a massive actor and now he's like one of the biggest actors right now gal gadot is another great example marlon brando and and gene hackman like if you would just and then not to mention 
another Godfather connection because we got Marlon Brando. Mario Puzo was involved with the story. Right. Mario yeah. Puzo, of course, wrote the Godfather book. Huge. That's a huge deal right there. Even if you could say they might have rewrote, rewrote some things and all that. Just having the name Mario Puzo in a post-Godfather 1 and 2 world is a huge deal. Especially with a movie like Superman. I know I'm talking about Legacy a lot, but all these superhero movies, especially the early ones, the best way to sell them was to get these like big, prestigious actors, basically respected people in Hollywood to come on board something that, for the most part, most people just looked at and said, nah, that's, who wants to, you know, that's a, that's a cartoon. No one cares. But then when you have Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Mario Puzo attached to this thing, people start to go, okay, all right, okay, you're catching my attention a little bit. And then you can just go ahead and, and kick butt. And it reminds me of the back of the 4K disc where it says watching Superman isn't like, isn't just like being a kid again, it's better. And I feel like a lot of that comes down to if, if you're someone like myself, who's seen Gene Hackman and other, and other things like the Royal Tenenbaums, seen him in Unforgiven and seen him in the French connection movies. And you get an appreciation for him being in this. And same thing with Marlon Brando with the Godfather on the waterfront and all that. Like when you rewatch it after, you know, so many years, it's like, that's pretty cool. But also, going back to that, as far as casting, Christopher Reeve. Is there a better Superman? I think we've come close. And I know people will make the argument for other actors. I know I'm definitely someone that thinks like Henry Cavill deserves a good Superman movie. I think he genuinely does. He does. Christopher Reeve is and probably will always be Superman, no questions asked. He just is. Like People like to say, oh, it's just because, you know, he had, he had such an unfortunate, like, tragic towards the end of his life and all, and all that stuff. But I'm like, no, if you really watch it, if you really watch it, he really understands this character and he really sells the hell out of it. The scene where he goes to, goes to Lois's place and he's like the bumbling Clark Kent, but you see him like straighten up his shoulders, take off the glasses and he has this different look on his face. I'm like, that's acting. That is brilliant. He has to play two characters. He effectively has to play two characters oh. in this movie and he's... A-plus performance on both of them. It's so good. There's just so many just just great, great de line delivery of things and the way he looks at people. When, when like, the one dude hits him with, with the crowbar, bad vibrations. I love that, like, the guys are just like, hey, because hey, hey, Superman doesn't see the guy coming at him. And they just wax him, and he's just... E -e 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 -e. The, just the sheer confidence that he has yeah. when he's Superman versus <laughs> oh, um, man. just or, the way he kind of presents himself as somewhat like meek and cowardly as Clark and it just it's oh you're right it's so it's so good I, I think the best example of like the confidence he exudes is the interview the famous interview scene with Lois Lane oh boy <laughs> that's flirt that's flirting right there too I just want that is that they do chemistry off the charts and it's also one of those things too where you appreciate it when you get older you know, because you appreciate that scene and the what? Because when you're a kid, you're just like, okay, is this the lovey dovey? Like, I don't stuff. watch I get that. It. There's a love yeah. interest. I guess Superman's got to have a girlfriend, Dumb. whatever. But when you're older, you're like, when they're on the under apartment or whatever, that's some of the best, some of the best scenes in the in the whole movie, right there. Do you, uh, Joey, do you like uh, do you like pink? Yes, I like pink. <laughs> oh my gosh! And, and he and he talks about just all all the weird, like uh, almost in you. The like, word play is, is top notch uh, too. Th things the, like all the different things that they come up with you know like when she's like going so do you um eat 
let's let's not forget Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. The OG DC Margot, by the way. I love Margot Robbie though, but the OG Margot. And she plays it she plays it very, very well. Um the chemistry the chemistry with her and Christopher Reeve, I think, is is quite excellent. Without a doubt. And just how just how like punchy she is and how like on the ball she is which is so like perfect for lois lane it just it works out so well really we got a really really good cast what did you think of gene hackman as lex luthor he's amazing they've tried lex luthor a lot in the few years there is one actor that did a pretty good job but it's tainted so bad now because of how awful that person is not gonna get i'm not even gonna say his name but i'm pretty sure you know what i'm talking about no gene hackman was so good and i also love that when the movie starts like like when you see what do you think of lex luther you think of bald evil like businessman evil scientist mm-hmm. character so when you first see him and he has hair it kind of throws you off but then as the movie progresses you start to see like different hairstyles that are so different it adds to the whole like wait a minute and then of course the big reveal at the end where he pulls the wig off and he's like lex luther and you're like yes <laughs> And even just his his like sinisterness and his classiness and his charm is so well done. But I think there's one thing I know you love <laughs> about him: <laughs> his uh, his sense of real. Oh yeah, the realist, the famous real estate plots. Otisberg. 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 All right, yeah. So Otisberg. Is it a running joke that whenever there's a villain who's into real estate or wants land? They automatically become one of my favorite villains, and it just seems that every Superman, almost almost <laughs> every Superman movie, on some level, has to deal with real estate, which is probably why he's your he's one of your favorite superheroes. Oh, Superman is the is the, the whole the patron <laughs> saint of real estate. <laughs> yeah, anytime anytime I see real estate in a movie, like I was watching the remake of the Magnificent Seven, and that whole evil plot became real estate i was like i know someone that's gonna love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but the, when, when gene hackman when 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 superman finds the the, the kryptonite and he's just like when it came time to ta- cash in your chips this old diseased maniac turned out to be your banker mind over muscle i love i love some some of like the exchanges that superman has and you could tell superman just really does not like Lex Luthor. It's, you know, oh, because no people always oh say Superman is such a Boy Scout, but you know that he's inside. He's just like, I want to rip this dude apart. If I had no moral center, this guy would have no brain in his head because I would burn it out with my heat vision. No. <laughs> <laughs> he just, this, like, the sheer hatred is. Uh, it humanizes him more. But though. I also like, too, that my thing with superhero movies, I feel like a lot of them, when we see a superhero movie, they're focused on one specific, like, villain plot, which is good for a lot of them. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I like that Superman goes into a tree and saves a cat. Listen, I know we said Henry Cavill. We like Henry Cavill, but here's the thing. Superman is the kind of guy that would stop whatever he's doing. Unless it's like life or death, to save a kitten from a tree. That's the kind of guy, that just says all you need to say about the kind of hero, the kind of kind-hearted person that Superman is. And people forget that, and it's sad. What I really like about the movie, though, is the first half of it is just what the building blocks of how he became the man that he is. You know, like you think about Jor-El as like a father figure, then you get to the Kents 
how they they build on him and you know how the daily planet sort of molds him a bit you you get all this stuff and then right. like the later half of the movie you get to see superman do his thing and when you do get to see superman do his thing you believe he can fly you can believe he can do all these things oh oh without a doubt superman the tagline is even like you will believe a man can fly you have um of course the superman shield on that poster you don't see superman on a lot of that advertising classic the classic poster when it's just clouds and then like a blur of like yellow red blue and then just that silver like chrome 3d logo Mm -hmm. it's 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 iconic side note do you miss poster art as much as i do I miss simple poster art. Again, going back to iconography, just that logo alone is all you need. You don't really need much else. But I, I want to bring up one more thing before we get to the intermission point. And that's a, my, one of my favorite things is at the start of the movie, it starts off with like the curtains. They part apart. It looks like you're on a little TV. You open up a comic book on that TV. And who's the narrator? A child. Exactly. That yes. is a very important thing because yes, people of all ages can enjoy Superman, but it's it's that the child that's in all of us, you know, that really gravitates towards that idea of something that could be so good and so self-sacrificing. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I mean, granted, I am talking to a rather older man wearing a Superman cape, but that's just the power of Superman. No matter how old you get, like Superman is for you. So I think with that said, We're going to take a quick intermission. When we come back, we're going to time travel forward 11 years to a very, very different blockbuster landscape and a very different filmmaker. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Now, let's take our bags, put them in the back of the trunk, and drive, as you said earlier, to a very different, darker, more, one could say, gothic city. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to Batman 1989. What? (laughs) They couldn't tell from the title? What? You guys didn't know? Guess what? We're, that's where we are right now. This is this one for me was very exciting because first off, this movie is like my my life. I've seen this movie more than any other movie in my life, and probably will never watch any other movie as many times. For you, you had only seen it like maybe a couple of times when you were younger, but you don't remember it as much. So when we were getting ready to watch this. Just the sheer joy and excitement of you kind of like reliving it, essentially. I got chills. Ugh. <laughs> Just to put in perspective with this movie, I've only ever owned it on VHS and digital. I've never owned it on DVD, never owned it on Blu-ray or 4K. We will fix that. Somehow. We will fix that. 
You're just gonna get a you're just gonna get a 4K copy in the mail. You're not gonna see it coming. You're just like, oh, what's this? With this one, you've met my uncle before. He's he's a huge, huge Batman fan. And one of the things with this movie, why I think part of it why I didn't watch it that often is because of Jack Nicholson. He was kind of scary for me as a kid. Oh my I mean, even without the makeup, he's just terrifying. I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And I had a nightmare once where I picked up my VHS copy of Batman, and I turned it over, and it was the Joker smiling on the back, and he winked at me, and I screamed, <laughs> and then I woke up. So you're saying the whippiness has never left you. Oh, it's, it, yeah. And that's probably the earliest dream I can remember, is screaming at this Batman, my dad's Batman VHS tape and running from it. Well, let me let me ask you this. Having seen it again after all this time, does it still scare you? No. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> it's What scares me, what scares me is that it scared me so much. <laughs> the thought of the terror itself is what's so frightening. Superman, as far as like, a, like an older blockbuster that was one i remember watching a lot like i have i have still have my, uh, the dvd copy i watched at my uncle's over and over and over and over again and i've bought superman on so many blu-rays but batman it was one of those movies where like for me whenever i watched it i, I remember watching it on tv a lot or sometimes on vhs or seeing a clip or two of it and i was just like yeah you know you know yeah yeah that was not the case for me. <laughs> That's why like, this episode, I was very worried. And I'm going to let you, I'm sorry, you have a lot to say on this. Right. I was very worried about this episode because I like the threat of these episodes being about movies that we really like. And then I thought, oh man, we come come to a point where this is going to be something I'm not going to be so thrilled about. But I was very surprised. But what's funny is you, you mentioned the whole like, because like that was kind of me with Superman. Mostly because, like, when you're a Batman fan, especially younger Batman fan, you have this, like, almost weird mindset that because you're a Batman fan and Batman's just so much cooler than Superman that you just don't care. I never really even watched Superman the movie until I started reading comics and when I was in high school. I started getting into the character and that's when I was like, I want to check this out and I end up really liking the movie. Batman, on the other hand, that movie changed my life. If you like if you looked at my my collection of movies, you'll notice a theme that a lot of them are like highly stylized, <laughs> like very decorative, like visually appealing movies. A lot of that is because like I loved that movie so much when I was younger. And of course, Michael Keaton, even if there's some elements of him that I don't agree with, like killing and not and using guns on on his vehicles and whatnot he's still like my favorite batman and that'll never change i actually got to see him in person kind of at a uh he did a graduation speech at a college i didn't i wasn't even attending the school i just wanted to see him and one of the best things is how how it ended was he said i'm gonna leave you with two words two words that you're gonna carry with you for the rest of your life and those two words are i'm batman <laughs> you just yes. you love it but no i love this movie so much i got to see it in theaters for the first time last year because it was the big 30th anniversary and they were re-released it was the 80th anniversary of batman the 30th of batman 89 and so they were playing all the batman movies so and i actually saw it i think twice in theaters i saw it once at a regular screening and then i saw a live orchestra screening of it which was a really cool experience to finally get to see like a movie that i have such a love for on the big screen. 
That's beautiful. Isn't it? You know what was interesting about this, too? You talk about, like, stylized movies and all that. Tim Burton, of course, directed this. When he was 30, mind you. This was his third movie, his first big-budget feature. We talk about, like, like, I guess more or less the risk factor with Superman and that, you know, they hadn't made anything else prior, so Richard Donner didn't have anything to take from, more or less, within that genre to make Superman. Tim Burton, on the other hand you know, at that time was a nobody. He had made two successful movies for Warner Brothers, and so that's what they were banking on. It seemed to work out for him. <laughs> the movie was successful. But it's also interesting, too, because, of course, you say Michael Keaton was Batman, which this is pre-the internet being a huge thing and talking about the castings of things yeah. online. This was a big deal back there was then. so many. That Mr. Mom was cast as so Batman. So many articles. Like, you got to remember... Michael Keaton was a comedy actor. It's almost like Chris Evans in a lot of ways, because prior to being Captain America, Chris Evans, the only thing I knew him from was not another teen movie, which is definitely not Captain America. Like, Chris Pratt is another example. Like, Pratt was a big comedic actor, and then the idea of him playing a Marvel character just seemed far-fetched, or Paul Rudd, you know, playing a Marvel character. And But more specifically, with Michael Keaton, you have this comedic actor being put in a very dark, dramatic role. And this was also during a time when this was post-66 Batman. And post-66 Batman, people, like, as much as we love it now, people were sick of it. They were like, we don't want silly, biff-pam, biff-pam-wow. We don't, we don't need that. We want, if we're going to do Batman, we want it like the comics. We want it dark. We want it serious. And so the idea of casting Michael Keaton just made people go, oh, not again. It's not what I want. And just for perspective, too, what year did The Dark Knight Returns come 1985, out? 1985, 86, somewhere around there. Literally smack dab middle of the 80s. Which, that makes a lot of sense with the approach that they were going for, because at least up to that point, it was a, a, certainly as far as like a mainstream audience was concerned, this, was a much, this movie was a much darker vision of the Batman mythos. You know, this was before Christopher Nolan and... The Zack Snyder versions of the characters, like, pretty interesting to think about how this was, like, the quote-unquote, the dark one. Right? When it came to the comics, there was that transition as well, because when the 66 Batman was around, it was very much, the comics very much emulated that, very much mirrored that, so they got sillier, they got crazier, and then, again, that was like a fad almost, and it just kind of faded away. Then the comics progressively got darker. So we had, like, the Frank Miller take on Batman. So when they were going to adapt it into a movie, modern audiences, like everyday moviegoers that probably had never read a comic book before, only ever thought of the silly 66 Batman. In a weird way, like a lot talk about uh, the fan perspective of like, oh, Batman needs to be dark, but it makes me wonder like, like the general audience where they're like, wow, this is so different than I expected. Uh, where are the jokes? <laughs> Where's Where's Frank Gorshin? Where's his cameo? What's going on? <laughs> I'm so upset right now. In addition to Keaton's casting, the most important influence of this movie, and it sort of goes back to Superman the movie, is the casting of the main villain. Oh my god. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about. I won't talk about everything because we don't have a, as much time, but with Jack Nicholson being cast in this movie, is very much the same ballpark as your Marlon Brando's as your Gene Hackman. This is a guy, he's, you know, One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, Easy Rider, <sighs> I'm blanking, The Shining. This is this is a guy that was probably, especially at that time, probably one of the most prestigious, like, the most prestigious actors 
like his career was like just so good for him and he was in all these big movies he's he's won oscar after oscar and so the idea that he's going to be wearing a purple suit dancing to prince music in clown makeup that is how you sell the movie 110 percent. you know you when you have that kind of an actor at the same time the money aspect like he was not cheap <laughs> i don't know if you've ever heard this i mean i'm sure you have but there are so many hoops and hurdles that they had to jump just to nab Jack Nicholson. He, like Tim Burton famously tells, well, not famously, I guess, but he tells the story about um, how he had to go riding on horseback with Jack Nicholson. And uh, if he said no, Jack wouldn't have done the movie. And Tim was afraid of horses. He was terrified of horses. And so, oh so he's like, gosh. pitch up on this horse. And if that never happened, he like Jack probably wouldn't have worked with Tim in any of the other movies that he's worked in. Like they wouldn't have become friends. It's funny to think that everything that's that came into play just to get Jack Nicholson, they 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 were determined to get him as the Joker, and they got him at a at a cost, but it was worth it. I mean, he's he's top build, yeah, in the movie, yeah. And thankfully, Michael Keaton didn't have to fight against another big profile actor, <laughs> unlike Christopher Reeve, who's got both Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. But Michael Keaton, he just he just he's got Jack. That's okay. He gets top billing over Jack Palance. One of the really interesting things with this movie that I really forgot about is that the movie really isn't told through Bruce Wayne's no, perspective. No, that's that's the big. I guess you'd call it controversy. I'm doing air quotes if you can't see. I mean, you can't. You're listening. But <laughs> you, you can't. Imagine, Imagine in, in your, your mind, mind, in your mind space, that a somewhat overweight guy is doing air quotes. Imagine, if you will. Imagine, if you will. Air quotes. What were we talking about? <laughs> the joke ran too long. About the the, the story isn't told from Bruce Wayne's right. perspective. And yes. the controversies, quote unquote. So, <laughs> my bad. So, basically, this came a big thing. And it's still something people complain about. Is that the movie becomes the Joker story. Like, Jack Nicholson. And it's even a criticism they had when the movie came out. Is that Jack Nicholson just kind of took over the movie. Whereas Bruce Wayne... It's just kind of off to the side and ba like barely shows up. The thing is, like that was done intentionally. Like Tim Burton was like, this this is a guy that does not want to be shown. This is a guy that wants to be in the shadows as often as possible. So he intentionally made it so that Batman more or less kind of became a, an enigma, a mystery. And, and in a lot of ways, Kim Basinger's character, Vicki Vale, kind of became like the lens in which we look through the story. Mm -hmm. and learned more about which is kind of interesting because you know for how many origin stories we get these days it's interesting to treat a character as an enigma and it works for batman because he is kind of a mysterious character like it's an interesting way to introduce a character especially given how many times we've had origin stories or even how many times we've seen his parents die which is a lot <laughs> quite a few times it's 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 definitely a lot it was funny when we were watching it because you even said that it it seemed a little bit overdone like it seemed a little bit like people were just taking it too far in a way because people were like oh he's barely in the movie and you're like he's in the movie a fair amount actually you know what i think i think part of the problem is it's not just jack he's, he's competing with jack nicholson is that he's also competing with a supporting cast that I don't think is utilized very well. No, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. They're they're kind of. They're, I don't feel like the like Kim Basinger or Robert Wool specifically like talking about those guys. They don't really play characters per se. It just they just kind of play themselves in costume, in a way. Yeah, 
because I, I think about Superman and Superman, I feel like just about everybody in the, as like the major roles is perfectly cast and they're utilized pretty well. I, th- I yeah. think about like, I think about Jimmy Olsen. I think about Lois Lane, Perry White in the movie, Ma and Pa Ken are utilized very well. And even Ot- with Otis Bur- Otis and Tetnacher, Otis <laughs> Otisburg, you know, you know, the freaking villain from Toy Story Three, it, it still so. it still feels it doesn't take away from the journey of Superman. Whereas I felt like in this one, I felt like I was getting too much of the dopey reporter, and then Kim, Kim Basinger <laughs> is really attractive. And she's done great things, but she's not given much to do. No, she's pretty much the poster child for the damsel in distress. So this movie's dated it. I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> like most, there's nothing wrong with that. Th- man. No, most this of what is, she does. This is what it is. Most of what she does is she gets captured by the Joker and screams. That's it. <laughs> like, there's nothing much to say. It's just that's just but, it. That's all she does. But but I also think about like like Commissioner Gordon is just kind yeah of, he's just kind of there like he's an afterthought. No, he's he's like we who who should be the commissioner? We need Commissioner Gordon. Okay, we'll just throw him in there. But you also got to remember too. I think um, part of the reason for that, not the whole reason, but part of the reason for that is you got to remember this movie was rushed into production. Like, once it got greenlit, once they got mm-hmm. the actors and the director, because they had to jump through so many hurdles just to even get the thing made. So they're like, all right, just make it, get it out there, we'll be done. Right. Like, so much, like even the sound effects is a prime example of that, because if even though they, they finally got their own sound effects last year, if you watch the earlier versions, which are still available on, like, digital and some of the older releases of the movie, all the sound effects were taken from other movies because they just didn't have time to make their own. So, like, the gunshots are from Dirty Harry mm-hmm. or, like, whenever the, the bat shield goes on the Batmobile, I think most of that noise is from aliens. Like, you just hear... Right. So I think a lot of that is just that a lot of the movie feels kind of thin in character and in story, but... In a weird way, like in the, at least from a story perspective, it it kind of works because it makes it feel like an event, like the Avengers a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this movie that, for all intents and purposes, you know, is very paper thin, has kind of cardboard characters outside of Batman, Joker, uh, Bob the Goon, <laughs> and uh, Alfred are probably the most defined characters. A lot of that, again, rush production, but also it just, they just know that you're just going in to watch Batman. And that's it. Like, here's Batman. Here you go. Have a great time. I also think about Superman the movie and how... Th- I, th- I thought I was, watching a do- I was watching a documentary and I could be wrong. I thought they said, like, 19 months of, like, production on Superman the movie, which is absolutely crazy to think about. Right. I mean, because they were also trying to shoot two movies, but even so, like, put that in perspective and then hear that with Batman, they kind of were like... All right, let's go. Let's get. Let's make this movie. Like I said, it was it was just a constant uphill battle to even get the thing into production. So many studios turned it down. So many studios were just like, "Nah, that just that seems stupid. I don't want to deal with that." Finally, someone's like, "All right, fine," and then they just kind of go for it. And now it's like one of the biggest franchises to this day. Still, it was a huge, huge deal in in '89. Uh, one of the other, the most notable thing too is the the production design. Oh, and, okay. Anton First, the late great Anton First, who created this beautiful. We don't again. I know we've talked a lot about in these last few episodes that we don't really get a lot of the stuff that we get in these movies anymore, mm-hmm. and especially with this idea that comic book movies 
should have like have the kind of Nolan more realistic take to them, which works for Marvel to a degree, just because you know Marvel is supposed to be set in our world. With like DC or or some of the more comic booky uh, other oh not comic booky some of the other like superheroes, you know that exist in their own worlds, it gives you that opportunity to be more stylized to create something more exciting and thrilling. So when you when you watch that original Batman, Gotham City is literally like a work of art. It's insane. It's mm. it's like steampunk. It's Art Deco. It I believe they kind of described it when they were designing it as hell rising out of the rising out of the ground in these like big spires, which is ironic because the tallest building in the Burton Gotham City is a church. And you were also pointing this out to me too that in that final climactic scene, which is on that church, very much uh, very much influenced by Metropolis. Right. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. you're saying that. Yeah. The 1927 classic fritz lang uh very influential film on star wars on blade runner and i didn't know batman was another influence but it makes so much sense when you watch it especially like not even just from a design standpoint the scene itself i mean takes place at the top of the church it parallels the 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 ending of metropolis really well maybe you should have done double feature of metropolis and batman (laughs) (laughs) sorry superman we'll watch you later that, and that just comes from Tim Burton. It's just, his whole shtick is uh, like the revival of the German Expressionism style of filmmaking. You look at all his movies, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, like, when you say Tim Burton, it's, a, it's essentially a style. He's kind of his own genre as well. You know, people, when they try mm-hmm. to emulate it, they're like, we're trying to get Burton-esque. Which is, it, I feel like that's like an actual artistic, like word now in a, in like a dictionary what does burton-esque mean you know what i mean it's just so established there's probably courses there's probably courses in college that are just that are like called burton-esque that again that just that's attributed to him and his love for for that kind of cinema he would influence and it honestly works really well for batman just like the kind of dark gothic noir but also stylized metropolis city the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, I miss it. The more I think about it, too, I'm like, Matt Reeves, he's doing his Batman movie. And I know they they, they started filming in, like, Scotland. And Scotland's kind of, like, stylized and somewhat gothic-y. So I'm, I'm hoping that... I'm just hoping. I'm hoping. I'm hoping it translates somewhat more stylized, but we'll see, I guess. Some, just some great little bits of dialogue <laughs> that are burned in my How's brain. How's the soup, Joey? How's the soup? That's my letterbox <laughs> review of Batman was, how's the soup? Segway. Follow us on Letterboxd. What was the famous line that Jack Nicholson that that, that the Joker says to uh, to to him? Um, have you ever oh, danced yeah. with the devil? Have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? I think this is a segue as well. This leads into probably the most controversial aspect of this movie, outside of having Batman kill people. The idea of having the Joker kill people or not no, kill people? What? No. That's- <laughs> Why would the Joker kill people? Why would he do that? No, the idea of Joker killing Bruce Wayne's parents. I'm curious more about your thoughts on this, just because, I mean, again, this is like kind of, again, you're reliving the movie. I have my feelings on it, but I'm curious more about what you think of this. If they turned it into an interesting story point, I think it, it would be acceptable. Plus, with with any of these comic book characters... Yes, there are certain traditions and things you have to stick to with each version, but you also have to try to do different things. But the biggest problem with this is it feels like it's a big deal, and then it doesn't become a big deal until 
you know, oh, I killed your parents, or ooh, bloop, or, I, I don't know what, what, I don't remember. It was just the, it, it, that was one of the biggest things for me because it doesn't really amount to anything, and it just frustrates Batman fans. I'm gonna try to spin it a little bit for you because in my own head canon, I found out a way, more or less in in my eyes, how I kind of not necessarily justify it, but have it work for me a little bit. Obviously, like I was mentioning, one of the biggest problems people have with this movie, as far as Batman's portrayal is that he kills people. If you look at Batman from the beginning of the movie to the point he finds out his parents are dead because of the Joker, he doesn't actually kill anybody. In fact, he catches a guy with his grappling hook and then hangs him from the thing so he can get picked up by the police. Until he finds out that the Joker's the one... Because mind you, in any other version in the comics, Batman knew who his parents' killer was... Like, even just looking at the Nolan version, he knew who his parents' killer was. He had the, the drive to do something about it, but into a, a dark place he didn't want to go. And then that kind of influenced the no-killing, no-guns thing, which kind of elevated from there. Mm-hmm. This movie, he never had that. In this universe, more or less, he never had that, that, that mindset. So it wasn't until after that moment that he actually starts killing people. I.e., he blows up everybody in the chemical plant. He pretty much let's and or kills let's die or kills uh the goons and of course he he kills the joker and then moving into batman returns hopefully we'll watch that soon um (laughs) he rolled his eyes at me (laughs) actually i'm actually very excited to watch that one at some point in that movie he kind of just kills people like willy he doesn't like just kill everybody but he just has no filter Mm -hmm. for that Sure. So, like, in my head canon, I think, here's a guy that for his whole life didn't know who killed his parents. Then he finally figures it out. And then, so that revenge comes back. Right. And so, he he actually starts killing people. And I don't know if that is the intention. And and I don't agree with it, because it just leads from one thing I don't agree with to another thing I don't agree with. But, it in a way, it makes sense to me now. Okay. I guess I could see that. But you know what? What what is bothersome? And we we what? we talked about this yesterday. And I jokingly just like brushed it off. But like when Alfred <laughs> Alfred brings Vicky Vale to the Batcave. Oh boy! <laughs> Literally following after uh, following the moment he finds out that that Joker kills his parents. <laughs> after that, and and then it's like there's no okay. My biggest problem with it is okay. Fine, maybe somebody came down there and they knew who he was. Whatever fine there's no dramatic like build up there's no like it's bruce wayne is batman for her like what she just shows up she just shows up (laughs) you know and i defended it but but that scene by like saying man alfred is desperate he just wants bruce to stop this unhealthy obsession with dressing up as a flying rodent and get down with a pretty lady and then he just wants to find love he just, wants, he just to, wants to find love. He just wants to find love for his his adopted son, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that's all he wants. Everybody like everybody throws Alfred's like feelings out of the out of like the bus or whatever. Especially like Dark Knight Rises, where he's just like, I can't let you say you die. And people are like, man, Alfred's such a wimp. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling here. you the truth, Master White. I'm here to say Alfred's feelings matter. But that said, it was a pretty dumb. Scene. Alfred matters. Throw that out there. Good gosh darn it. But going back to the killing thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
I will say one thing. I, I remember when I kind of thought of this more or less headcanon, um, and I brought it up. Uh, a friend of mine mentioned, well, what about the opening scene when they talk about Johnny Gobbs? They're like, Ugh, after what happened to Johnny Gobbs, he's like, hey, look, Ben, Johnny Gobbs got ripped and took a walk off a roof, all right? So it's this whole idea that maybe, maybe he did kill people at first. But I look at that and I go, that's what Batman wants. He wants people to think that he's terrifying. And what's more terrifying than the possibility that he killed somebody? Mm-hmm. There's no confirmation because they're they're both like they're both like talking about it as if they're not entirely sure. It, I feel like there's just little elements that kind of make it work for me in my head, but maybe I'm just tooling it that way. At the end of the day, it's kind of like goes back to me defending the end of Superman the movie. Right. I kind of equ- equate it to that, where I'm like, I know it's not perfect, but I try to justify it through x y and z it's like i want to make sure that when they get to this part i don't just go oh why just enjoy it for what it is i go actually though you think that way but listen but i think the most important one of the most the most important contribution with this movie we talked a little bit about it with superman marketing when this movie was coming out it was batmania it was sweeping the name. The only other time that there was this much craze for a movie prior to this was the 66 Batman. Like, people were getting haircuts with the bat symbol in it. People were, like, buying the merchandise. Like, Disney would have, like, been so jealous. Like, what? Why is there something more popular than Mickey Mouse's silhouette head? Put more hidden Mickeys. Put more hidden Mickeys! What is going on? <laughs> just, just all they uh, that's the kind of like the magic of that movie is that they and this is something that's passed on to pretty much every other big franchise movie that's based on something is that they saw they had a property that had a built-in fan base already which at that time wasn't like a wasn't like thought about a lot wasn't a big thing like the big franchise for like star wars back to the future original creations that had to get traction essentially had to get people to to the theater or they were they were based off of things and they were high prest- like they were later seen as high prestige projects like the godfather right exactly like the godfather Whereas with films. with batman they were like people love batman like doesn't matter who like people love batman we need to lean in this so hard and so the marketing is insane the trailer is is probably not one of the greatest trailers ever but it only it does exactly what it needs to do. It shows you what what they're doing. It shows you Batman punching people, looking dark, looking scary, and you get the the Danny Elfman crescendo, the Danny Elfman music in the background, and that's all you get. And people literally bought tickets, like with like with some of the Star Wars movies. People literally bought tickets just to see that movie uh, with the poster. Just yeah, just, just to see, to see the, the yeah, trailer. Just see the trailer. Mean, pardon right? me. It was also like like Phantom Menace, exactly. where people bought tickets just to see the Phantom Menace. Exactly trailer. like that. And then the poster, like we were talking about Superman's poster. The Superman poster has more detail to it. It it has more of a style and art to it. Whereas the Batman poster is just a shiny bat logo. And that's it. There's no text. Yeah. There's just the logo and the date it was released. It like literally when the movie was coming out in Times Square, if you look this up, in Times Square, you just saw the bat logo smack dab in the middle of Times Square. Which people would drive by it and be like, what? What is that? And let's also talk about Batman the Ride, where the sign for Batman the Ride is just the Batman logo, and underneath it, it says, The Ride. Again, we talk about like recognizable symbols, like Superman. When you see the Batman logo, 
you know it's Batman. It's everywhere. It's on t-shirts. It's on hats. It's in people's skin. It's on cups. It's on toys. This is something that, again, at that time was still as big as it is now. I mean, it's probably bigger now, but back then it was huge as well. And so they saw that and they said, we need to lean into this. We need to to really like hammer this home because this is going to make a crap ton of money and we can pay Jack Nicholson. <laughs> That's the, like, we need to afford Jack Nicholson, first of all, <laughs> and then we can make money. And they thankfully did both. What's really crazy, too, is kind of like how we I said, like, Christopher Reeve has become, like, the definitive Superman. Right. I would say that Batman shield, that Batman logo, has become the definitive Batman oh, logo. yeah. Even after all of the iterations we've had over the years, I still... That one is the first one I think of when I think of Especially Batman. because, like, even today, like, it's on t-shirts. It's on everything. I remember, like, when I was in, when I was in high school, we had... Going back to Superman a little bit, we had shirts because our, our team's name started with an S or something, and they were the Superman logo. And so, like, it's just, and I'm, and I don't know if that's done with Batman, I'm sure, but like, just the idea that even something like that just is, you know, implementing such an iconic logo, you know, it just shows that these logos are, you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just jabbering a little bit. Oh. <laughs> The cultural impact. Yes, thank you. Of yes. um, uh, of this stuff, but it made a lot of money when it came out. Hugely successful film. It was one of the highest grossing movies for a while after that. I think. Um, World worldwide, worldwide, this movie grossed four hundred eleven million dollars, and that's in nineteen eighty nine dollars. A lot of dollars in nineteen eighty nine dollars. Like, think about it like this too. Like, there's also a negative side to this amount of, like, heavy marketing. In a weird way, with Batman specifically, this became, like, the focus for for Batman. And that any later movie, especially in the 90s, was essentially determined by the toy sales and, like, mm-hmm. the merchandising sales. Like, famously, Batman Returns was heavily criticized by McDonald's because here's this movie with... Michelle Pfeiffer in a gimp suit, essentially, and <laughs> Danny DeVito with black ooze coming out of his mouth. And they're like, you expect us to sell toys for this movie? Really? And so then following that, any other Batman movie, Forever, and especially Batman and Robin, essentially became toy first, movie second. So in a weird in a weird way, like the marketing, while it was very big and important, I think they became a little bit too much as the movies went on. I mean, because didn't this, the success of this movie also spin off, I don't know if you mentioned this when you were talking about that, um, the animated series? Yeah, so Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, Alan Burnett, all those guys, they credit the, the Burton Batman movie as essentially if this movie did not exist we would not have had any, like, we wouldn't have done our show. Yeah. And that's also been, like, a thing, like, a lot of the, I don't know if you've noticed it, but a lot of these, like, superhero movies, especially DC movies, as they'd gone on, they kind of had, like, an animated show associated with it. The 90s movies had Batman the Animated Series, uh, the Nolan movies had The Batman, um, and then kind of later on they had, like, what was it called, like, Beware the Batman, which is a terrible show, don't Yeah, not it. a great show. <laughs> I guess they kind of associate, because they were building up, like, a cinematic universe, they kind of associate, like, the Justice League action or, like, Young Justice or some of those animated shows that they did. Um, Birds of Prey has Harley Quinn on DC Universe. 
So that's a continuing trend since Batman. Batman kind of started that as well. No, definitely. So with with both of these movies, both very very big movies, what can we take take away from the success of Superman the movie and Batman 1989? I think with Superman, it's definitely a, a case of narrative and character development, which Fun fact, and you can look this up, I'm sure, Kevin Feige, the mastermind of the MCU, and um, Jeff Johns, who essentially is like, you know, for a long time was a, was the, the head of DC, essentially, or at least the creative officer of DC. Uh, these two guys were interns for Richard Donner. Oh, yeah, I remember you saying, tell me this. And so obviously these two were heavily influenced by Superman, so when you watch any of the MCU movies or... Even uh, some of the DC movies like Wonder Woman, you can clearly see heavy influence from Superman narratively and character-wise, and and even just a sense of hope and heroism, which some movies, I'm not saying which one, because I don't want Zack Snyder fans to hate me. You already said (laughs) Zack Snyder. They already know you meant the Owls of Cahool. What? I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. The Owls of fans are going to come after us. Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, uh, just a sense of heroism. That comes from Superman. And then with Batman, uh, definitely the marketing point of view. Just basically understanding that these characters have an ingrained fan base and that you can lean into that. But don't lean too much in because then you just care too much about the toys. But also just the, the, the scale and the sheer like event nature of it all. And then, of course, with both of them, you know, getting like high profile actors to help sell it a lot more i mean if you look at modern like anthony hopkins is in the thor franchise what (laughs) like how crazy is that granted they're not the best movies but still i mean thor ragnarok's amazing but that's beside the point um robert redford is in captain america 2 in winter soldier jeff bridges in iron man jeff bridges yes jeff bridges in iron man even like gary oldman or michael caine or uh, Morgan Freeman or any of those guys in like the Nolan Batman movies, which are directly influenced by Richard Donner's Superman, even to the point where there's a great bonus feature on the 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 trilogy box set where Richard Donner and Christopher Nolan talk about their movies. I do recall watching that, and that is a great that is a great supplement, and it, and it shows you that people think about Superman the movie, think of it this fantastical thing, and then the Nolan movies are like really realistic, but it shows you that there's more of a similar approach than what you would think with Superman exactly. the movie and la- yeah. and later and later films. I definitely agree with you with Batman though. One of the big things is marketing, making these things into events. I mean, I think about the Avengers posters. The Avengers like the not the right. ones with all the characters, but like the teaser ones that just have like the A for Avengers. Right? It's just it's it's literally just the A logo and you know exactly what it is. And it's just like each movie Which they'll they'll change it a, a little bit, you know. You know, I, and I think what, what's great about both of these movies is that they, they have similarities, but I think what's, what was really worthwhile about watching them was that after I watched Superman, it wasn't like I was just watching the Tim Burton gothic version of Superman the movie. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a two and a half hour, like... You mean Batman. Yeah, Batman, excuse me. Though, though fun facts... Tim Burton almost did Superman. This is true. And there's a great, uh, there's a great documentary uh, by the late great John Schnepp. Great. Sadly, late, definitely great John Schnepp. Uh, great documentary. Go check it out. 
well, what I mean to say, like, it's not like Batman the eighty nine is just it's it's not like Batman eighty nine is just Superman the movie, but with like gothic architecture, you know? Right. It's, um, it's, it's a different. It's, it's animal. its own beast. It's its own. Yeah, it's its own animal. At the same time, like I feel like they both, like you were saying earlier, like yeah, they both have their similarities. I was saying too, like it was weird watching them t- back to back because this is fun fact. This was the first time we actually watched the two double features back to back. This is the first time we actually <laughs> took our own advice, pretty much. So it just shows you uh, the respectability of our podcast. Yes, we need awards. I mean, what? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> In a weird way, I can kind of see these two movies existing in the same universe, as different as they are. Mm-hmm. And you don't really get that anymore. Because they're so... like, And yeah, I like the like the connective tissues and all the movies looking the same, like the Marvel movies. But I would like something that's a little bit more of a standout, a little bit more distinct. Which we kind of get with like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, or Thor Ragnarok, like the movies that stand out a little bit more from the rest of the herd mm-hmm. because then you get like kind of a new experience with something as much as I love those movies. Cause I am a fan, but you, I want something a little bit different. And so I, I wouldn't mind if they try to do like a cinematic universe and then, but like the movies just feel like two different entities that happen to be in the same universe. Going back to those movies, it was interesting thinking about like Superman, the movie, you know, this 40 year old movie technically has more of a hint for a sequel than batman 89 does oh yeah 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 batman's like one and done there because with with richard donner's superman movies like obviously he he planned out like a big epic almost whereas with with batman like batman kind of had like all these hands all these people working on it yeah you can say that you know tim burton captained the ship but at the same time they're just like we just need to get this movie done and made and Mm -hmm. out there we need to we need to make sure the marketing worked. <laughs> and so um, with Batman, yeah, Batman spawned a successful franchise, but at the same time, it's just they didn't have any plans to keep going until they saw the money, until they saw the numbers. Superman, they like they initially wanted to make like a whole series of movies. Well, they had like the they had like the two films, and like the way the ending was going to be, it was going to lead into. You know, it, it, there's a whole, there's a lot of thing, a lot of things with that and, yeah. and all that. But at the at the end of the day, I think it's important to look at these two movies. That you know, I think with their combined efforts, as well as like especially like the superhero movies of the early two thousands, um, they sort of helped define and shape a you know a subgenre of movie. Here's my question. I know normally we ask this at the end of the first segment, but I'm going to ask you this now. For these both, for these two movies. Would you recommend these to a modern audience? I definitely would. I'm not going to say they're for everyone because I think about some of the effects in because the effects in Superman 78 were groundbreaking for the time, but some of them you can say like, "Oh, you can see the lines here and there." Or Batman 89, the funniest scenes in that those movies are when Batman is on the streets and he's running <laughs> in his suit, which is a cool-looking suit, but not practical. There's no practicality. In the I feel like with Superman, with Superman, they forgot the gravity, and then with Batman, they forgot that Michael Keaton needs to move. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, I do think that if you're somebody who is curious about learning the mythologies of these characters, and you know, seeing seeing where certain things have continued on and continued from, and all that, I think they're definitely a great a great pairing, and a much better pairing for a double feature than I was initially. Thinking, uh, didn't G- uh, Gifford suggest this one? Yes, yes, our good friend uh, Andrew Gifford. Andrew Gifford, good old, good old Giffy, as we call him. 
Giffy. Uh, I just want to say thanks, man, for suggesting this one because this was. I don't know. I, I think this was like my favorite uh, view. Like to watch these movies mm-hmm. was definitely my favorite experience so far. Mine is definitely just watching you watch Batman. I mean, because <laughs> like we'd both seen Superman so many times, but I'd live for that. I live for like watching movies I love with other people, even if they hate it. I'm still like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happened. Well, I think that about wraps it up on our pretty lengthy conversation about these two landmark films as always it's a lot of fun to talk about these movies with you richard as it is with you and folks we are on spotify we are on itunes google podcasts soundcloud we're everywhere or as far as places you can listen to as far as social media we got we got instagram twitter uh, facebook and you can follow richard and i on youtube and our own pages we also have a letterbox like i was mentioning earlier which is a very fun app i just entered into which is great. And you can see my review of Batman, which just consists of How's the Soup? It's I liked it. It was a great review. <laughs> Anyways, guys, thank you oh, so man. much. And of course, have a good day. Well, folks, thank you for listening to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. The music for today's episode was brought to us by John and Kenny Armstrong. Special shout out to Andrew Gifford for suggesting this week's topic. Thank you so much, good sir. Next week, we travel to the not-so-distant future, one a chaotic wasteland and one a depressing utopia full of robots. Stay tuned. Same podcast time, same podcast channel. <laughs>